Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. This week, my guests are Idaho Education Association Executive Director Paul Stark and IAEA President Lane McAnally. Now, we talk this week about crisis and opportunity. We talk about some of the crises facing schools this uh, fall with uh, reopening in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, the political pushback against education in the form of Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan's Education Task Force, but we talk about opportunity, namely the $1.4 billion budget surplus that awaits legislators when they come to town in January. Here's our conversation. Well, Paul and Lane, thank you for joining us this week. Um, I want to start with kind of where we stand right now. It's a couple of weeks into the school year down here. Schools are just starting to open this week in North Idaho. What are you both hearing from the field? What, what are your members saying about the start of the school year? What are their questions, concerns, observations? Lane? Yeah, so uh, as I've been talking to educators around the state, they're incredibly excited to get back into their classrooms and work with the students and uh, develop lessons that are going to be uh, beneficial for for the learning of their students. Um, they're definitely looking at larger class sizes, and so it's, it's more difficult to be able to uh, implement some of those lessons and have individualized instruction because they are back to pre-pandemic and even bigger than pre-pandemic class sizes. Um, and so as our students are coming back into the, into the classrooms, they're welcomed by smiling faces and, and educators who are incredibly excited, but we definitely have to look at some of those things that educators are constantly asked to do. Well, let's follow up on that. I mean, this, the large class sizes, and that's been a problem long before the pandemic, and now it's a problem again, it sounds like. How does that intersect with what teachers are trying to do right now to try to get students back uh, to where they were before the pandemic to, to erase some of those uh, gaps in learning? You know, I think that... Um the learning loss that we saw isn't as drastic as what some people are assuming because during the pandemic we had smaller class sizes. And so the educators were able to individualize lessons for students. They were able to identify uh, potential issues that students might have. And so they were able to uh, educate the students. And now that we're back to pre-pandemic numbers, our educators are asked to do more and they're, they're uh, not able to socially distance those students in the classroom. And so not only are they worried about educating the students, but they're also worried about making sure that they, they stay healthy and safe. And all of this is in a backdrop of the pandemic and the growing case numbers that we're seeing, especially in the schools. You know, we're seeing an increase in the schools like we've never seen before. Most teachers have had access to the vaccines, have had access to the vaccines for months now. But the case numbers are rising within the schools. What, what are you hearing from members about, you know, their feelings about uh, teaching in, the, in a pandemic environment? You know, in that situation, Kevin, you know, it's it's the thing I've noticed. And again, both Lane and I have been all over the state, you know, so this isn't like a Ada County centric opinion. But what we see is we see amazing courage and strength and you know, uh, strength that we haven't seen before. So a lot of our teachers, uh, educators, I should say, are coming back and, um, you know, they've they've weathered a pretty rough storm last year. They're now weathering another storm. And they're doing so with a lot of integrity and grace under difficult circumstances. Uh, it doesn't help when um, there are outside education influences attacking education on top of this. They've already got a tall task. They're already coming off a pretty tough year 
where they did amazingly well. They adapted so quickly, and and you know they did really fantastic jobs last year. It's now back. You know, COVID's still an issue, uh, but now this time around, we we seem to have all of these outside attacks that are just layering unnecessarily layering more stress and frustration upon our educators. So we see a lot of bravery, we see a lot of courage, a lot of determination, but, um, but certainly there are some, some out there that aren't making it any easier. And I want to get to that, but I want to kind of drill down a little bit more about sure. the virus and the climate that teachers are working in this year. Even with teachers who are vaccinated, are, are they more concerned coming in this year or has the vaccine helped alleviate some of those concerns? I would say, and I'll let Lane jump in here, I would say the vaccine has alleviated some concerns. We didn't have this last year. Right. You know, and people were legitimately afraid for the life of themselves and their loved ones. You know, we there was so much we didn't know, and we know a lot more this year. So, yeah, having the vaccine and wearing masks, it's, it's pretty much proven science that that does have a pretty drastic effect on the spread and for your own personal safety. But, um, you know, teachers are altruistic. They don't always aren't thinking selfishly. They're thinking about their coworkers, the family members of their coworkers and their students. And so, yes, uh, I think it's uh, wrong to say that the virus is not still playing a part. It's definitely playing a part. Um, And I think that our educators really want to see um, us follow the CDC guidelines and they want to be able to... uh, have the opportunity to educate their their students in person when it's safe and so they want to do all the all the steps that they can to make sure that they can continue to have that in-person instruction um, because there's no better place to learn than in the classroom and so our teachers need to make sure and our educators need to make sure that they are following all the guidelines that will help keep us as safe as possible and I've got to imagine you get a different message from your members from district to district. I mean, just in the Treasure Valley here, Boise, a lot more aligned with the CDC guidelines on masks. West Ada with this opt-out policy, there's it's a little bit different equation. So you're probably hearing different things, I'd imagine, from your members. We are, but I think the overlying... Uh information that we're hearing is that we just need to follow CDC guidelines. We need to make sure that we're being as safe as possible because like I said, there's no better place to learn than in the classroom and our educators want to be in the classroom when it's safe to be there. I agree. Everybody wants to be safe. (laughs) Let's shift back to the external forces you were talking about, Paul, and I think I know what one of those is uh, the task force. The the Lieutenant Governor's task force uh, wrapped up its work uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm We've seen the recommendations. You both have been watching this process uh, you know, from the outside looking in a little bit. What was your observation about how this turned out and where do you think it goes from here? Um, my observation of it is it's just pure political theater. It had no basis in reality from its inception to its conclusion. This is all about politics. And I would say, let's get politics out of the classroom which is exactly what supposedly this task force was trying to do. But honestly, it was waging a political battle with education as the field of battle. We don't need that right now. We don't need any of that. What we need to do is get back to focusing on students and what students need. And what students need right now, well, I'll tell you what they don't need. They don't need politicians using their education and their classroom as a battlefield for political objectives. I'll also add that um, when you talk to community members, 
one of the things that they talk about is how amazing and loved and talented the educators are within their uh, community schools, within the schools in their area. And so when you talk to these community members and you hear about how amazing these educators are, that's the thing that we need to need to focus on. We need to stop looking at these big, broad, overarching statements and drill down into our communities and look at what our, our, our students are able to accomplish because of the educators in their buildings. And have you heard anything from the local level, from the ground level, that would support uh, where this task force started in, in its investigation? Uh, no, unequivocally no. Um, and and for your listeners, it's it's worth reminding that you know standards are chosen, you know, are developed by the State Department of Education. The legislator, the elected legislature, votes on approving standards, which we've seen. And then curriculum is decided at a local level by locally elected trustees. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the Code of Ethics prohibits an educator from using their position as an educator to advocate for political positions or political candidates or whatever. So we have, we have multiple layers of assurances here in Idaho that um, what is being taught is chosen by Idahoans. And parents or patrons have, this, have the pathway to go through their local school board. Absolutely. You know, they have the, and that's why we say, you know, these people that are worried, like these outlandish claims, if they're worried about it, ask a superintendent. Ask your trustee. Go ask your teacher. You know, I mean, go to your, your school right there in the community and, and see what's going on. And I guarantee you, if you if anybody, any citizen in Idaho engages with their public school, they're going to be pleasantly surprised. Not only that, they're going to be quite impressed. And, and I suspect some of these talking heads out there are not engaging in their schools at all. So all of these factors, the virus, the learning loss challenges, the, the politics, how does all of this sort of tie together into larger concerns that uh, have been around for a while, concerns about teacher retention, teacher morale. How does all that uh, come into the equation? Well, um, I think the way it comes into occasion is, you know, we've, we went into the pandemic and to this political season, you know, 51st in the nation for per-pupil funding. I mean, this isn't our, at least our legislators' lack of interest in adequately funding public education in Idaho is not anything new. But we come into that and then we layer upon all that with the politics in this. Here's, here's an interesting thing for you to consider and the, your listeners. Look at last legislative session and tell me how many bills actually had to do with students. Very, very, very few. It had to do stuff with like, let's water down teacher certification or let's take away uh, the ability to have negotiations. Right, the Shell to May bill. Yes, and there were several others. Uh, there were, there were in, a, in, a, in a season that we had unprecedented federal money flowing into Idaho and unprecedented tax revenue flowing into Idaho. It, at that times, what we see is we don't see anybody talking about students. We don't see anybody talking about student welfare. And we don't see anything um, that would build up and get us out of that dubious reputation of 51st in the nation for per-pupil funding. The thing that I would add on to that is, unfortunately, in Idaho, 
depending on your zip code, it depends on the type of education you receive. I was just in a, a school district who I was talking to a chemistry teacher, and she doesn't have a chemistry lab. She doesn't have a science lab to educate her students in. It's just a normal classroom, whereas you come to another district and students are being educated in a science lab with different opportunities, and we need to be able to look at uh, across the state having the same opportunities for all of our students so that they can all succeed. Kind of building off of that, talking a little bit about the budget, we saw State Superintendent Sherry Barra come out last week with her budget request, and there's an $82.2 million line item for the career ladder. It's funding for all-day kindergarten. What was your overall assessment of that proposal, and how does it set the stage for what we might or might not see from the governor in January and from the legislature next, uh, next winter? So overall, I think we were pleased with the budget, but there are lots of steps that are going to have to occur before um, before this is approved. Uh, one of the other highlights that I would like to make sure that people are aware of is that she is proposing um, an additional increase for our classified staff. And we know that our classified staff need to be paid a livable wage. They are uh, an integral part of our education system, and if we can't entice them to come in and work, um, then we we're going to suffer and there are real shortages in the districts because they're competing with uh, with with external you know, employers that are also struggling to find workers exactly so we need to make sure that we're paying them a livable wage so that was another highlight that i i think that she um did really well on yeah i you know on that i was recently last week talking to a superintendent about this and just the struggles they have to even attract applicants for these classified positions and uh, we, I think anybody who knows education knows that that's the oil and the machinery that allows schools to function is our classified employees. And without that, we, we can't achieve what we need to achieve. So, yeah, you exactly hit the nail on the head. How do you compete with the private sector for, for scarce employees when you're paying $5 less an hour? It's, it's, uh, it's impossible. Let's put this budget request and the K-12 budget into the context of this $1.4 billion surplus that the state is sitting on, but a lot of competing interests and ideas about where that money could go. How do you two build the case, make the case uh, between now and January and January and beyond for public education against all those other competing interests? One of the ways that we build our case is by having... Um, our members share their stories, having them talk to legislators and um, let them know what's actually happening in classrooms. Because when they see that we are overcrowded, we're sixth in the nation for largest class sizes. When we're 51st in the nation on per pupil spending, having those stories to talk to legislators, to entice them, incentivize them to uh, put some of the, the surplus money into education so that we can, we can continue to perform and build upon the public education that we've got. You know, with the with the with the money that we do spend, we seem to get pretty. We, we get okay results. Um, you know, statistically, uh, compared to other states, compared to their. You know, I, I imagine a world where if we did adequately fund education, just how exceptionally, you know, we we blow the roof off with our Idaho students. You know, we're the best. I mean, we just we just have just the best people here, and we have the best students. And if we were to even, you know, come close to adequately funding education, just what amazing pride that would be to the state of Idaho. In our polling that we've done, and we've done some polling, 
um, this this dubious 51st of the nation is something that the citizens of Idaho don't care for. No one wants that. And the sixth largest class size, no one wants that. These are, these are issues that pull very important with Idaho citizens. And they want more out of, out of the legislature. They want to invest in their public schools. It's just, uh, you know, it just takes, um, I think, their voices to be heard. And it's not just the polling. I mean, you can see it community upon community with supplemental levies that, uh, you know, that voters say, yes, I'm willing to spend some money on property taxes to, you know, to, to build, to backfill maybe what uh, isn't coming in terms of state support. That's right. Yeah. So, Paul, let me shift to you a little. You know, you're, you're in a new role. You've been with the IAA for, you know, for several years as legal counsel now, as executive director. You're well known to a lot of our listeners, but maybe not, maybe not to every listener. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to the IAA, how you moved into this position. and Sure. Well, um, you know, I've been practicing law in Idaho for, I'm a Boise State grad, and I, uh, I've been practicing here for over 20 years. Um, I've had a variety of different roles, but one of which was uh, working for a law firm that represented school districts on the other side of the table <laughs> from the IEA. But um, but still education related, and that's where I developed a great love for education. And so in 2011, right after the passage of June of 2011, right after the passage of what are called the Luna Laws, right. um, I came on board in a very tumultuous time for education. And I, so I've seen a lot of ups and downs over these years, these 10 years. Um, you know, uh, my own family, I have five children, and all public education uh, uh, students, and they've all gone on to, well, so far, we still got one in the hopper, but uh, <laughs> the other ones have gone on to uh, to go into, um, gra- uh, you know, graduate school and postgraduate degrees, and um, I, I attribute that a lot to the great teachers that they had right here in Idaho. Um, as I take on this new role, uh, I think you're going to not... Uh, be surprised that I'm going to be the same person I was as general counsel. Um, a lot of the folks in the legislature know me, and they know me for my uh, honesty, and I'm straightforward. And um, you know, my character is is worth more than it is for a win or expedient a moment. So um, I think the consistency that uh, those that have known me will see that that continues, and I, I intend to. Uh, with fidelity, do this job with the same integrity I brought to the general counsel job. And I know it's a few months out, but what are you expecting to be working on most in the 2022 session? Both, both of you. I mean, there's yeah. there's the money, there's uh, standards, academic standards coming back. Uh, I think I think you'll you'll get much of the same, right? Um, we're still going to be just as engaged as we always have. That's what I've told teachers is that while they're teaching, we're there in the legislature trying to defend public education. Um, but uh, what you're going to see, I think, from us is you're going to see an increased, ever-increasing emphasis on the student. <laughs> and, and that was so lacking last session. And uh, we have to bring it back to that. What is good for the student is, is the paramount question uh, that we all need to ask. The other thing that I would like to highlight is that um, not only are we going to try and defend public education, but I also want us to be able to be... Uh, the leaders in public education. We want to talk to lawmakers about how we can make public education in Idaho uh, the best it can be. And so we want to defend the the public education for our students, but we also want to make it the best we can for our teachers, our educators, and the students of Idaho. 
and I suspect a lot of that goes back to what you were talking about before about trying to have local educators and local local students, parents, patrons talking about you know the experience at home. Okay. Yeah, we definitely want them sharing their stories and talking to their legislators. Are you? I know it's a few months out. Are you optimistic heading into this uh, next few months? This next, you know, electoral cycle, legislative cycle. You know, one point four billion in excess revenue makes me very optimistic. <laughs> this is, I mean, Kevin, this is the moment. I mean, this is a watershed moment for Idaho. This is the moment we could change things. This is the moment where we could fulfill our constitutional requirement of providing that that thorough. A uniform education. This is our. This is the chance we have. It's right there. It was served to us on a silver platter. If you if you take the federal funds, oh my heavens, this is the moment where things can change, like drastically change for the better. And so that's how I look at it. As this is a very very pivotal moment in our state's history. And I'm just, you know I don't I can't say I'm optimistic, but I can't say I'm pessimistic. We're going to go in this very realistic. And we need everybody's voice to be heard at the legislature to say, let's do this. Let's make Idaho that hub for excellent education, for excellent student achievement. Um, this We can do it. And this is now. We may have to get back together in a few months to see how that window <laughs> of opportunities is looking to you both. But I yes. appreciate this and appreciate the time. And thank you for coming in and catching up. Thank, thank you. you. We appreciate yeah. it. Again, that was Paul Stark, the executive director of the Idaho Education Association and IEA president, Lane McAnally. That'll wrap it up for the podcast this week. It's been a busy week here at Idaho Education News as we continue to cover the coronavirus pandemic and the implications for schools, whether it's the rising case numbers, whether it's the ongoing debate over masks in school, or maybe some of the angles of the story that don't get as much attention, such as shortages in substitute teachers and bus drivers. We're trying to cover this story from every angle. We know that this is an important story for parents and for kids, and we're trying to make it our top priority. So we, I urge you to continue to watch us at idahoednews.org for the latest. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We will tweet out our links and any bulletins to breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And check back next week for another edition of this podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week.